Elucidation, I think, is what I wanted to say. Elucidation. Welcome to The Reframe. My name is Josiah Van Vliet. Uh, sorry I've been gone for as long as I have, but I'm back with a podcast that I've had on deck this whole time. I've been looking forward to recording this for a while, and hopefully this new setup I have is slightly better. just spent a bunch of time testing the audio quality, and I'm in a relatively isolated room for a change. So no upstairs neighbors, no traffic noise, no uh, overhead planes uh, this time. It's just me, some fan noise, a weird spot of tinny echo something that I think is actually the laptop is my guess. Anyway, um, so today we're going to talk about um, the media. I have been at work talking to two of my coworkers and friends about the media and the things that they cover and have had two threads of conversation that um, have driven me to reframe my own thinking on the subject. One of my friends, he uh, has a degree in journalism, and I would come to him and say, you know, X, Y, Z about my disappointments with the media, uh, most of which is just that uh, people seem to be generally misinformed about the world, and I find that quite frustrating. And I'd say, you know, the media this, the news this, that. And he every time I'd say something, he'd say, like, well, that's not really journalism. That's, like, editorial or, like, that's not really a news source. That's just, like, a media organization. And his counterarguments were substantive and engaging in a way that sort of pushed me back to be more basic and more fundamental about what I was trying to say. Um, and what I meant. And what I meant was not a critique of journalism or the media generally, but I realized that what I'm really mad at is that there's no one in the American system, no person or organization who believes that it is their responsibility to make the U.S. population a well-informed population. There are organizations that have good agendas, that have ethical perspectives and good methodologies, but no one feels like it's their fault that people don't believe in climate change. There's no one who thinks that it's their failing that the U.S. population doesn't understand the unemployment figures during the Obama administration. There are people who are upset that people don't understand it, but no one feels like, oh, that was my bad. I let that down. I, I let everybody down, and I, and now people don't know the truth. And in a lot of ways, my frustration with the people who call themselves news is if I hired them to inform other people about something, right? If I had paid CNN's wages and overhead to inform the public and they did what they do now, I would fire them, right? They don't do that. That's not what they do. They do something else. All of this thinking brought me back to a subject that is related to the last podcast, if you even remember it, is that the brain is not a truth engine. It is a survival mechanism. It produces behavior, not truth. All of the things that I wanted to talk about with my coworker and friend is that ultimately boils down to mass media. Right? That's the general category of thing I'm disappointed in. But what is mass media generally? at the level that I want to describe it at. And at the level I want to describe it at, mass media is the institutions 
of secondhand experience. They're the organizations that you and I turn to to find out about the world in a way that lets us know what's going on. And a key reminder for me personally all the time is that we are animals. And as animals, we require information in order to make decisions. So in the earliest days of being an animal, you had very simple organisms that had very simple receptors, and all they could do was move towards things or move away from things. And they detected other chemical signals in the water in which they lived, and they moved towards those signals or away from those signals, either as signs that there was food there or danger. Um, And that was the entirety of sort of neurological and informational control states at the time. And as we move forward evolutionarily, I'm not going to do a great job here, but, you know, let's move up to ants and bees. Ants and bees communicate with one another somehow. Um, Bees do a little dance, and if you interpret the dance correctly, you'll know where that bee found a flower or a source of sugar unless a human researcher is involved and then that bee is lying to you. Um, Ants leave trails of pheromones for other ants to follow. Now, in both of these cases, it's secondhand report to a a degree, but there's there's no interpretation. There's no, well, is this chemical trail laid down by a particularly stupid ant and I should ignore it there's none of that interpretation it's just another signal from the world and it's not really understood and it's not really contextualized at all um, for a variety of reasons not least of which is that the animals don't have the capacity to do that but it's still secondhand report right it's still it, you those ants and bees are not smelling the flower they're not remembering the path they're not detecting the source of danger they are getting a signal that represents the food source of the danger from a from one of their fellow animals but when you move up to the human scale of communication things become enormously more complicated not just because the individuals are more complicated but because of that secondhand report takes on this entirely new dimension when you receive a signal or a representation from a fellow human being, not only is that potentially a very rich source of information that's more than just, here's where a flower is, but it's also within a context. And you need that context and the understanding of psychology and the culture and the references to parse what second-hand report means at a human scale of communication. And mass communication, mass media, is all just massive, institutionalized, second-hand report, second-hand experience. Someone saw something, and now they're telling you. And now you have something that's like seeing it, but it's second-hand. So the second-hand report, the second-hand experience, and an institution dedicated to doing it is what I want to talk about. Um, These distinctions of journalism versus editorial versus media are irrelevant to the human animal. Um, Those are institutional distinctions. What we are is we are thinking, planning creatures who need information in order to build a model of the world so that we can use our judgment about what's going to happen when we do something. 
And without good information, we can't have a good model. And then our judgment, no matter how good it is, is going to be working with flawed data. And that's the thing that's really bothering me. And the thing about being the kind of creature that does this is that we automatically do it. There are, in some circles, uh, sort of two questions for an animal like us is, what are we going to do next? But also, what are we going to think next? And the inborn habits of mind that we are given by evolution include an innate curiosity. When we hear information, we try and integrate it. When we see something, we try and find the pattern in it. What is it? Why did it happen? Why am I seeing it? What does it mean? There's almost, you know, to train yourself to see things as what they are without trying to interpret it is a life's work in Eastern traditions of meditation. A task that is not even well described or commonly described in popular culture. But we will use whatever we have around us to create those models. And this is true throughout our history as an animal. And when that was the weather and animal signs and oral traditions, that's what we used. And now in the modern age, it's a whole new set of things. Everything from what your friends tell you to what your parents raised you to believe to Twitter to, you know, Facebook. All of that gets parsed. All of it gets internalized at some level or another. And I want to point out some of the intricacies of this from a historical perspective. Um, so the history of secondhand report, it starts with, frankly, it starts with bees and ants. But the useful part to start at here is word of mouth. The first secondhand report in the human system is someone told you something that they experienced. And at that level, there are systemic problems. Not systemic problems. There are systemic inaccuracies in word of mouth. You have what the person thinks is interesting. There's what the person is capable of noticing in the first place, what they're capable of describing, what the two of you have time and attention to discuss. Um, all of these things go into a sort of institutionalized editorial process. Certain kinds of information just cannot be conveyed from word of mouth. One of the things that's very difficult to convey via word of mouth is the intricacies of smell. The English language and maybe human language generally does not have a good grasp on describing what something smells like to somebody else. Um, and, you can, and that's just one of the things that secondhand report is just never going to get from one person to another. And that what that has to do with, I'm not sure, but it's an interesting point to be made about if you know your friend tells you something, one of the things they cannot tell you effectively is how things smell. And then there's the boring things that are just too long to explain. I don't know what that's like, but some people, uh, you know, are more respectful of their listeners. Um, there are um, things that you don't want to hear, um, and there are things that they don't want to talk about. There are things that they didn't notice. So these intrinsic frailties and these intrinsic systemic inaccuracies are built into word of mouth. You're just never going to get that information through that channel of communication. There's all these you had to be there kind of stories and they ex and whatever the mechanisms are the point is that those systemic frailties exist. And then you get into the written word which has a lot of the same human language limitations that uh, word of mouth had 
um, but it has a couple of advantages. So it has an infinite memory. Um, the oral tradition, you really don't know what your great-grandparents thought or said if you live in an oral tradition because they're all dead and no, none of them wrote it down. But with the written word, you have that permanent memory, that offline memory. And you have, but you have a lot of the same psychological and human limitations, right? There's nothing about the written word that's going to get you that sense of smell. There's nothing that's going to get you past the fact that they couldn't notice things that human beings don't notice. And then you get really interesting things about how long something lasts on paper and who copies what. And, and over time, the historical record of, the, of a written tradition has certain kinds of things that it can't remember either. Um, certain kinds of books don't get copied, and so the, the one copy gets lost. Certain kinds of things are too boring, too uninteresting, not sexy enough, and they just don't make it. Again, the systemic limitations of the communication method. One of the most interesting uh, ref reframes that I came across while I was doing this thinking is that the voice from the pulpit in the Christian tradition is a form of mass media. And this one starts to get institutional in the way that I actually want to talk about. Because the Dark Ages church had resources that no one else had. They had the capacity to copy books, but not very many. They had the capacity to teach people how to read, but not very many. They had the capacity to own property in which these readings could happen, but not very many. And so there was a certain amount of they could get their message out to the masses and they could communicate what was important and what wasn't to people over time across a geography that most other institutions at the time could not. But note that there are some interesting limitations here that have to do with the institution of the church and the message and the interaction. The church can only say things that will keep their parishioners coming back. They can't say just anything they want up there. It doesn't look like this from the perspective of the pulpit, but they can't say things that's going to make everybody not show up or not tithe. They can't say things that are internally inconsistent to too great a degree because uh, they're a a values-driven organization, right? And so if you're a values-driven organization, you have to stick to your values, at least putatively. They needed to bring enough people in and make those people tithe at a rate that allowed them to continue to copy the books, to continue to own the property, to continue to train readers. And all of that was very expensive at the time. And so they had these new institutional limitations on what they could say and what they could know and what they could communicate that don't have to do necessarily directly with human psychology or human physiology, but with the institution of the church and the way that it was organized monetarily, that it, the way that it was organized institutionally. You know, what could they get monks to write down? What could they get them to copy? And what could they say that would keep their parishioners coming back and tithing? So the church is really sort of this first, it's probably the state before that, but I think the church is a more interesting example. The churches are this like really early example of a mass media organization is an institution to get secondhand experience and secondhand interpretation across to a listening audience. And then we move into the printing press, which, which was in a lot of ways directly opposed to the to the old church because it circumvented the church's monopoly on the written word. Because before the printing press. If you wanted to get a copy of a book, you would pay a guy to sit down 
and write down all that book again. Hugely expensive undertaking. With the printing press, you, you start to do away with that, and now you have new limitations. So the early printing press has a new set of institutional limitations. You have to have the money to own the printing press. You have to make money at a rate that allows you to operate the printing press. You have to stay in the good graces of both the church and the state because either the king or the pope decide that what you're saying is unacceptable, you're going to get shut down. And so now as people become more literate and the printing press becomes more effective and more and more people can read, a new set of limitations come up. And these are sort of more obviously capitalistic requirements, capitalistic limitations, right? Because now the situation is not, well, no one can describe smell because of this like limitation of language or the limitation of you know, human perception. No, now it's if we say that, they'll come in and take the printing press away from that. Or if we aren't interesting enough to sell copies, then we won't have the money to print more copies of anything. We have to talk about stuff that people will pay for. Otherwise, we cannot talk. And it has this very interesting institutional limitation on what's going on. And then you get into the telegraph and the telegram. And what this does is it sort of broadens what an institution can know or can talk about. Because in a lot of ways, those technologies collapse the world into a single point. Nowhere near what the internet is going to do later, but think about the editorial choices that you have pre-telegraph and the ones that you have post-telegraph. Before telegraph, you can really only talk about your local area. You have word of mouth and the written word feeding into the printing press as this growing institutional ecosystem of ecosystem of of institutions getting people information from increasingly distant sources. And the printing press already had a problem, had the problem of time, because they could have written about anything that had just happened or anything that happened 100,000 years ago. You know, there's no backwards limit. But now you can talk about current events that happen anywhere on the planet. And now you have an entirely new set of editorial choices. And now you start getting sort of data limitations, bandwidth limitations on these institutions. You can talk about whatever you would like as long as it is something you could find out, is something that the king would allow, is something that the church would allow, is something that you can make money saying, and is something that you, know, you can find out about. You can print anything you want as long as the king will let you say it, the church will let you say it, and you can make money saying it. Anything, anywhere that anyone has said or seen can be reported back through this printing press mechanism. And that editorial choice is huge. There's so much truncating, there's so much editorializing, I mean in like the cutting things out editing way, right? Even if you were just going to play, I'm going to tell you what happened in a very you know naive way, you have to make a ton of decisions all over the place. And furthermore, you know, as an institution, you have the, as an organization, you have the internal dynamics about who's making these decisions and who, and how are they being made and what does that institution know? And why did it choose to know that? And what is it, 
what is its worldview that made it make the totally fundamental editorial choice of what to talk about. Um, you know, I said earlier that animals have to choose what to do next and what to think about next. And these organizations have this choice about what to find out next and what to talk about next. Um, and when you move into the modern age with um, electronic communication, those choices become radically difficult to perform. There's so much you could talk about that it's not clear how you would make that choice at all. And if you look at the way that most contemporary media organizations have decided to make it, you know, they're, they're clearly not using uh, the best interests of their listener in mind. They're talking, they, you know, they're talking about, you know, nonsense and garbage all day. But all of these dynamics continue to grow and change as technology changes. Um, you know, the, the leap after telegraph is, is radio, after radio, TV, and then the Internet, which we'll get to. As these institutions grow and interact, the various limitations cord and interact in surprising ways. At the end of the day, what we have is we have a curious animal trying to decide every day, what do I do? What do I think? And using whatever information source comes along to build up that model about the world so that it can make intelligent decisions. And the basic structure of secondhand report at a human level stays the same. If you go to work, if you have a new job and you meet uh, you know, a woman named Sally, right? Sally's been at this work site for a long time and you just started. Now you know for a fact that this woman has an enormous amount of information that would be really useful for you to have. S information about relationships, job skills, personal relationships, where the bathroom is, everything, right? And so you would like to get her experience transmitted to you. But when she tells you things, this is not like the bee or the ant. She has her own agendas, right? She has her own take on things. She could be wrong in all kinds of ways about relationships or the expectations about job requirements. And so what you have to do is you have to listen to her and take that information because you have no information right now, and she has a lot. So you have no choice but to listen to her. But you need to build out around her other methods of finding out about your new work environment. Now, there's never a place where you start working and there's only one wo woman who you ever get to talk to. And frankly, if there was, she's the only person you care about anyway. But as it happens, you have other sources. You have the documentation. You have the other people who work there. You have your own lifetime of experience. And then as you work there, you have your own experiences. And you start to find out not only about the job site, but you also start to find out about Sally. And you find out what kinds of things she's good at noticing, what kinds of things make her and you agree about a subject. As that relationship deepens, you build up sophisticated ways of 
asking her the right kinds of questions, listening with the right kind of filter, ignoring her when she talks about the things that you disagree with her about, and you build up this sophisticated relationship with her. And that relationship of finding out about the world and finding out about the sources of information that you have about the world scale the same way that this history has scaled. When you watch the news, you know, if you watch the news on TV, you know that they have advertisers. You know that they have to talk about stuff that's going to get them ratings. You know that there are all these biases and structural limitations built in. And we as a culture develop sophistication about how to interpret the information that we get from those sources because we have built up a level of sophistication about the world and the sources um, and the sort of historical mistakes that these sources make. And this is where the internet gets interesting because I think that the, with, with the internet as a new source of information, we have a technological advance that has no corresponding cultural sophistication to match it. No one knows at this point what the structural biases of Twitter are in a really interesting and sophisticated way. And if there is anybody, it's not everybody. We don't know the pattern of how Twitter and Facebook go wrong. And in point of fact, because of the way that these algorithms work and the way that they're written, you mean it's in the news about how Facebook is itself changing to match the sophistication of people exploiting it for ad revenue. And now when you go to onto Facebook, fake news, like the real like Macedonian teenagers creating clickbait fake news, like that dynamic came and maybe has gone. But you can see how there's a level of sophistication that you would need as a Facebook reader to look at those click links and understand what they meant. And that even over the course of six months, you may need to know about fake news and then all of a sudden you don't again because they banned all those sites. So this relationship between the human animal and its new methods of secondhand report is very new and there is no established uh, sophistication to help the average consumer with the interpretation. One of the reasons that I've kept talking about what do I think next as a basic human response to just being conscious is that curiosity has the has a similar role in our lives as hunger it's a persistent desire for more information um, and it's true all the time and it's true to varying degrees sometimes we want to we really really want new information sometimes we don't really care um, much the way that we're occasionally very hungry and we're not very hungry these institutions respond back to human need and you can see this in the, once you get, even even the church, right? The church, printing presses, TV stations, radio programs, they all have these structural limitations about that they cannot say anything that does not make them enough money for them to pay for their own ability to speak. And so the true trouble here is not that they have these limitations or that they have these structural biases or that journalism versus editorialized information, none of that, right? The problem here is that we live in a capitalist society, and if you are not capitalist, if you're not a success as a capitalist organization, you simply cannot live. 
in the same way that an animal that cannot eat cannot live. It is a fundamental aspect of the way that organizations in a capitalist economy work. Let's talk about food for a second. When you go to the grocery store, none of the organizations that made the food that's in there are organizations made to create nutritious food for human beings. That's not what they exist to do, even if that's what they think and say that they are there for. What they are is they are organizations that exist to make money by selling stuff in grocery stores. So they are money-making organizations in the realm of selling food from stores. They are not nutrition makers. They are not healthy body creators. They are not there to make food that's good for you. They are there to make money making food that you will buy. Nobody at Nabisco is worrying about how to provide the most enjoyable, most nutritious, cheapest to produce foodstuff for the contemporary human animal with the needs and desires that exist as a product of evolution and culture. No, they exist to increase stockholder value. That is the only thing they are legally permitted to exist to do. Now, they may be responsible and not put out unhealthy food, these organizations. They might be trying really hard to make healthy food in this structure, but the, f- the barrier to entry, the barrier to continued existence for food producers to make food that turns a profit when you sell it. So there's no one in the human food arena of human activity whose job it is to create a nutritious meal plan for contemporary people. That's not what anybody is doing. Certainly not at scale. And they can't. There are rules about not putting out poison. There are rules about saying what your food is made out of that allow a consumer to make a set of choices that are more and less healthy depending on their time, money, and access. But you can't just go to a company and say, feed me. Right? You have to interpret what they've done against the context of capitalism and nutrition in order to eat healthily because there isn't anybody out there just making healthy food. They might make healthy food if making healthy food turned them a profit, but that's not what they're allowed to do. They're allowed to make a profit. And that is fundamentally what's going on with media. The limitations of, you know, human knowledge and institutional reach and editorial choice and bandwidth limitations, those all exist. But the fundamental life or death decision for an organization is, are we making enough money to stay an organization? I ran this idea past a good friend, and he asked, what do we do? And what we do in the media environment is the same thing that we do in the workplace example that I gave you. Right, We have in front of us a huge array of information sources, all of which are structurally limited in a variety of ways, some of which we understand, some of which we don't. And what we need to do is build out our own understanding of the world and our own understanding of those media sources so that we can build a model of the world that permits adaptive behavior. Right, because that's the thing to remember about all of this is that you don't have to be right. You just have to be successful. 
you know, there's no reason that the bee has to have some deep epistemological logic behind why it believes that its co-worker bee shimmied the right way so it knows where the flower is. It just has to follow the direction successfully enough of the time to contribute to the success of the hive. Truth has very little to do with it. And so this is what you, so what you have to do is you have to find a way to double check or recheck or cross check the information that you get and build out your own model of what you think is true. And only that to the degree that you need it. Um, which is why in these cases, the thing that I'm actually upset about um, with national media and the state of the average American's understanding of the world, the only time I'm upset about this is when they vote. Because I don't believe that it matters whether or not my plumber has a good concept of macroeconomics or cosmology. I don't care what he thinks. I need him to be a good plumber. But a lot of people vote, and probably not enough, but the American population does not know what's going on in the world at a high enough rate to a high enough level of accuracy, in my opinion. And I think it's a failure of capitalism that it has created a pantheon of informational organizations and media organizations, the net effect of which is misinformation. I have no clue what to do about that, but it, I find it deeply upsetting, powerfully upsetting. And frankly, this podcast is, in my own small way, my attempt to contribute positively. So that's the reframe. They are not there to tell us the truth not even their own their own slanted version of it. They're not there to lie to us about anything else. They're, they, they are there to make money. These media organizations do not exist to tell us the truth or to tell us lies. They exist to make money in the realm of talking about events. And they are systemically, they present systemically flawed information. And that systemic, those systemic flaws can be corrected for, theoretically. But it has to be understood that these are not researchers that you pay to bring you back information. They're not beholden to you at that scale. They're beholden to a capitalist structure that is too complicated to bother describing. But they need to make money for their shareholders or they need to bring in enough donations to keep their operating budget in line. That's what they exist to do. Now, they exist in a context of information distribution in which being believable, being barely acceptably honest is a requirement in the same way that they have to make money. One of the things that would keep them from, being, from making that money is by being chaotically dishonest. Right? If they just put out noise, no one would be, no one would watch. If there's no signal, you know, no one would make, they would never make money doing it that way either. So there are, there are constraints that we can trust that they abide by, that, and not all of those constraints work against us. Some of those constraints work for us. But they have their own agenda, and their agenda is not even in the same plane as informing the public. And in order to make sense of the world around us, we need to understand not just the world around us, but also the sources of information that we use to understand it. And without that double check, those, without that complicated cross-checking, 
you really have no hope of knowing what's going on unless the people you're listening to happen to tell you what you need to know. But if you're not bothering to check why they're saying what they're saying, you have no hope of knowing whether or not you're being lied to, told nothing, or you know being told the truth. There's no way for you to tell. Which is an extraordinarily long-winded way to say you have to be a critical thinker. But the specifics of that, uh, I, I thought, bared some elucidation. Um, thank you for listening to The Reframe. Please visit my Facebook page or my Patreon page, both of which I will link to in the show notes. This is my fifth podcast uh, and hopefully the fifth of many. Uh, I'm going to put some effort into making this one popular. I'm going to maybe even spend money on advertising. So any shares, any likes, any tell a friend thing that you feel comfortable doing is greatly appreciated. Hit me with your questions. Uh, If you have something you'd like me to talk about, please email me, post a comment on my Facebook page. Uh, I would very much like to have that sort of back and forth. I find answering questions much more interesting than just writing down what I yell at my radio. I hope the sound recording is better. Sound recording quality is better in this space. I appreciate your time. Thank you for listening.